so much for that. That is a great truth of the Bible, isn't it? They don't walk away when he could have. Young people are dismissed. If you want to go now, if you are is of, uh, up to grade four or grade five for some who's there, go back to Children's Church. All right, that's Esther teaching them. All right, take your Bibles if you would today, Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. I have really enjoyed my uh, study, uh, personal studying through Judges, and uh, you've seen that because we've pulled a few messages out of it, and I think we will some more. Uh, but uh, I'd love the book of Judges because it's so, uh, has such exciting stories and different things that we can learn from it. Now, in our modern culture, it is, it is uh, considered chic or in style or fashionable to be environmentally friendly. We're encouraged not to waste. We're encouraged to recycle, to salvage, to utilize, and several different ways that we do this. We do it through recycling, which is taking what could be trash and making something useful out of it. We, go, we do what we call repurposing, uh, where you take something that's not useful anymore, but make it useful for another purpose. We, we uh, have reconditioning, taking something old and remaking it and to serve its original purpose. And then there's remodeling, taking, uh, tearing the old out of a home or a car or a church and uh, rebuilding it with modern amenities. Now, have you ever considered that God is doing that from the very beginning with people? Uh, he recycles the worn out and makes them able to accomplish great tasks for His glory. He repurposes failures and gives them a new purpose to live for in life. He reconditions the weary with a new energy, with strength to do what otherwise would be impossible. He remodels a life that is worn down by sin, rebuilds that person into a valuable vessel in his hands. One of the most wonderful things about God throughout the Bible and even today is who he uses. And that's what I want to look at another person today because sometimes we look at the people in the Bible and we say, what in the wide world is God using them for? Until I look in the mirror and I ask the same question. God uses unlikely people. And I think that's a wonderful part of the Bible message. Now let me begin today with a little disclaimer. Some things that we're going to look at specifically in today's message might be a little crude. And I never, from this pulpit, I don't want to disgrace uh, the, I call this the sacred desk. I don't ever want to be unsophisticated or obscene in any preaching here at Bible Baptist. But that being said, sometimes the Bible is pretty raw. It uh, just tells things as it is. And uh, the, if a man, by the way, this is one of the ways that we see the veracity of the Bible. If a man writes a history, he usually glazes over the unpleasant parts to make it sound better. The Bible does not do that. It just lays it out as it is. It gives the good and the bad about our, our heroes. It gives the good and the bad about the situations. So uh, we're going to look at this today, and there's a couple of hairy parts we'll work through uh, throughout this story. You know, the, the, sometimes it's it, you just have to give the Bible as it is. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a woman who drove a nail through a man's head, nailed it to the floor, and then chopped it off. I mean, that's rated our Bible right there, isn't it? And uh, by the way, I just want to mention, uh, I've had all these different ladies asking to borrow my nail. Uh, You've got to stop, ladies. All right, Just because one person did it years ago doesn't mean it's okay for you. I just want to say that publicly. But let's read our text today and see what we can learn from God's Word. 
Now, sometimes, I'll, before we read, sometimes it's important and helpful to look at the original language. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, you can, I think the, we, our King James Version Bible, I think, is a, is, has everything you need to know to learn, to grow, and all that. But uh, it sometimes sheds a little more light on stories looking at the original. We're going to do that on several different uh, places today uh, as we work through this to give us a fuller understanding. Let's start reading Judges chapter 3, verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present. But he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he arose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. When he was gone out, his servants came. When they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, Surely... He covereth his feet in his summer chamber. And they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And he had escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped into Syria. Syria. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew the trumpet upon the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountain. And he went before them. Father, I pray you'd help us in these few minutes. We don't want to do any disservice to your word, but we also want to learn the lessons you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When we talked about JL, and we, we talked a little bit about the history of Israel and how they lived this roller coaster life, they would, they would, uh, they would go and follow idolatry, then they would go into uh, oppression, and then they would ask for deliverance, and God would deliver them, and they would worship God for a while, then they'd go back and forth and up and down in their Christian life. Uh, they would cry for a deliverer, and God always sent them a deliverer. Now this happened in verse number 7. We didn't read. They did evil, and God allowed them to be delivered into the hand of uh, Cushan Rithashayim. Uh, that man's name means twice wicked. Uh, don't, parents, don't name your child Cushan Rithashayim. It's, it's hard to spell, it's hard to say, and uh, of course it means twice wicked. Anyway, God allowed them to be delivered to twice wicked, and for eight years they served him until God used a man named Othniel to deliver them. Now, Othniel, interestingly enough, is the younger brother of Caleb. You remember Joshua and Caleb and that great story, how they were the only ones that were going to go forward and conquer the land, and, and uh, everybody else, uh, ten, uh, the, the, the 12 spies, you know, uh, ten, uh, two were good, ten were bad. Yeah, they were the two good ones. And so this is, Othniel is his younger brother. And apart from Joshua, Othniel is the only man in the book of Judges who was recorded without any significant flaws. But finally, through the de deliverance of God using Othniel, the Bible says the land had rest. 
and then it had peace, which peace comes from the rest that it had. As long as Othniel judged Israel, they had peace. It would do us well, folks, to understand that the blessings of God follow obedience to God. Uh, when we want to see blessing in our life, we need to be obedient to Him. Uh, if we, we are obedient, we'll be in much better shape. This is true for any nation. Uh, Psalm 33, 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, this is true for a people. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. This is true for each and every individual person. Uh, Psalm 112, verse 1, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, and that delighteth greatly in his commandments. But there was a problem. After Othniel gave them deliverance, through, uh, the Lord did it through Othniel, they served God for a while, and then they started to do wicked again. Uh, this revival did not last. Things went well until verse 11 when it says, Othniel's son of Kenaz died. What a sad commentary for any people. They were simply followers. As long as there was somebody leading them in the way of righteousness, they followed willingly enough. But when it came time to stand on their own two feet, spiritually speaking, they didn't do it. They were just followers. They were uh, weak, backboned people. Now, it's, we can identify with them because they are us and we are them. Uh, we do the same thing in our Christian lives and we go through these cycles where, especially in our nation and as a people, uh, where there's people, we follow the Lord for a while, we look up and then we go our own way and, and uh, we have these cycles even personally in our lives as well. So verse 12, after Othniel died, it says the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. This time, God gives them over to Eglon. He's the king of Moab. We see in verse number 12, if you read this with me, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. It's interesting. God used a pagan king to chastise his people. You say, does God do that? Yes, he does that. He's done that all throughout, not only the Bible, but throughout history. He uses a pagan, uh, pagan people sometimes to do that. Uh, one thing the book of Judges shows us is that God is in control. Even though Eglon would never in all his days have admitted that his power and his strength came from God, uh, yet God is the one who allowed him to have it. <coughs> so what do we do today when our world is un in uncertainty? What do we do with the Putins of the world and, and uh, dictators and tyrants? Well, understand one thing, friend. Uh, God is not in heaven going, oh my goodness, what shall I do? Putin has invaded Ukraine. I didn't see that coming. Now, I don't know what the whole plans of God are, but he is not shocked by the happenings of the world. He's in control. He is sovereign. We saw that a few weeks ago as we went through that. Trust him. Trust him. He's got things in hand. It wasn't only Eglon, but it was an alliance with Ammon and with Amalek. Now, you remember the Moabites were and the Amal Amalekites, both of them came, are the children of Ammon, both of them came from the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters after they left, uh, they, they fled uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it gets worse here. The Bible says this alliance came and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Now, this is the city of Jericho. This is where the place that God had given his obedient people victory over their enemies. You remember the story of Jericho? It was an absolutely unpenetrable city. No way they could take it. And so God says, here, here's your battle plan, Israel. Walk around the place seven days. Once a day they were to walk around the city of Jericho. 
By the way, that is not a threat, is it? Really? You think they were trembling in their in their boots or their sandals as they were watching this? They were probably laughing themselves silly. Israel walking around. You don't ever somebody you know bully you or do something bad to you. You don't ever yell at them. If you don't stop it, I'm going to come and walk around your house. You know that's not a threat, okay? And so they did this seven days, and then the seventh day seven times, and God gave them that city. Walls fell flat, and they were able to go in and take the city. This was a place of victory. This was a place of God uh, giving them the, the, uh, the victory and the strength to do what they needed to do, and now this is the very place where Eglon now has victory over them. Terrible thing. It's a terrible thing when places of victory in our lives turn into places of... Now here they are under this wicked king for 18 years. As before... The people responded as they did before time. They, were, they cried out to God. And this is where we're introduced to a man named Ehud, the subject of our uh, message today. My message today to you is uh, Lefty and the Fat Man. That is the title of our sermon this morning. And uh, I want to talk about Lefty and the Fat Man. Ehud was Lefty. He, the Bible said, was left-handed. And it's interesting to me, why would the Bible say specifically that he was left-handed. You do know that left-handed people can't do anything right. They can't do anything right, okay? If you didn't get it, you're probably left-handed. But it's okay. It's not a big deal to be left-handed. Some of the greatest people, uh, great people in the world have been left-handed. Leonardo da Vinci, Joan of Arc was left-handed, Babe Ruth was left-handed, Albert Einstein, Neil Armstrong, lots of great people, my personal favorite, Katie Yoder, uh, these are left-handed people that, that it doesn't really change your life in that great way. There are some things that are a little bit inconvenient, but for the most part, you live life. Why would they mention that he was left-handed? Well, if you go into the original, this is where this helps a little bit again. The word for left-handed is itari, and it means impeded on his right. And so the original language leads us and tradition, and uh, most uh, scholars would agree that he was not only left-handed, he was disabled in his right hand. So that's the idea we have with, uh, in fact, we have a little bit more evidence on this. The Bible says he was a Benjamite. Now, who were the Benjamites? The Benjamites were warriors. You could say they were the Navy SEALs of the Israelites. They were the fighters. In fact, the Bible says that they were able to shoot at a hare and not miss. I didn't really pull one out. You're using your imagination, okay? They could shoot at a hare and not miss. They were Good fighters, they were good warriors. Yet here was Ehud. He was not a warrior. He was an accountant. He was the one in charge of the tribute money, the tax that they paid to Eglon. Now they call, the Bible calls it a present. Uh, the original word is minka, which means tribute. This was a tax that they have to take to Eglon. Uh, nobody in Israel would want to take Eglon, the one who took them over, a present involuntarily. All right? so th- or voluntarily, I should say. They took it because this was a tax. And so, while <coughs> he would be the one that crunched the numbers, he was the one that, at the end of the fiscal year, would take this tax to Eglon, and he's the one that presented it to him. While his peers would be trained in battle, while they would learn how to be specialist, uh, uh, special forces fighters and, and uh, all these different things, he was stuck on a desk job due to his disability. This could be a cause for discouragement. It could be a cause for defeat but not Ehud. Here's what Ehud does. He decides that he's got access to Eglon, and so what Ehud does is he goes and fashions himself a dagger. The Bible says this dagger was 
a cubit long, which is 18 inches. It's about from the tip of your fingers to your elbows. This is close to about the size of a dagger that Ehud built for himself. He makes a kind of sheath or a holster for it, and he puts it, the Bible says, on the right thigh, uh, presumably on the inside, under the clothing, so that it would not be able to be seen or felt at a cursory pat-down. Uh, he was wanting to sneak this weapon in. And uh, this, the, the time comes to take the tribute money to Eglon. He straps on his blade, and he goes with the group of people. The Bible talks about this <coughs> people he sent away as so there was a team of people. There's a lot of money they had to take to Eglon. And they get there. Uh, he, when they get there and deliver it, the Bible says that Ehud sends the folks away that he came with. He leaves too, but he comes back. And he tells Eglon, hey, I have a secret. And so Eglon says, silence. And uh, we read it a minute ago. By the way, the Bible says Eglon was very fat. The original words for this, I took all the I kind of took the whole line of um, definitions. Abundance, to a great degree, exceedingly, fat. And I, one of the definitions is fed. I think that's hilarious because that's actually how you get there. Um, but he was, I'm talking, he was really, really enormous. If he got his shoes shined, he'd have to take their word for it. I mean, he was big. He was so fat if he bore, uh, wore, uh, bought a fur coat, a whole line of animals would have went extinct that made it. He was so big he couldn't jump to conclusions. You get the idea. This was a big, big man. Think Jabba the Hutt. This was the original Jabba the Hutt that was sitting in. And, and by the way, how would you like to be immortalized in Scripture as a very fat man? This is who he was enormous. And it, it mentions that one reason I believe is because he had gotten fat off the Israelites. And so he is there gorging himself while the Israelites are starving, while they're having hard times, and with this tribute money they bring him, he lives like uh, in extreme extravagance. He's a picture of the flesh, never satisfied, always taking in more and more and more and gorging oneself. He, the Bible says, was a very fat man. Now here was Ehud, and Ehud was no real threat to him because Ehud had a bum right arm. All he had was a, he was a left he had his left arm, and uh, so I think it's interesting that Israel chose, uh, chose Ehud because he was obviously able to crunch numbers good, and he was disabled, so he couldn't do much else, and he was perfect for the job. Uh, Eglon was fine with Ehud being the one that brought him the money because he's disabled. He wouldn't pose a threat to him. Even if they did a cursory pat-down, they probably wouldn't find the weapon on his thigh. And so, when he says, I've got a secret message for you, Eglon says, silence to all his people. He sends all his people out of the room. Now, it's only Eglon and Ehud in the room. Now, here's the scene. Uh, he says again to him, we can kind of lay out the scene of how this worked. He was sitting on his throne. Again, he says to him, uh, I have a secret message from God. And so, the Bible says that Jabba the Hutt stands up out of his chair starts to come toward him, and at the same time, he lunges forward, plunges the knife into him, so they kind of, bodies almost clash together. And I apologize, here's where it gets a little messy. I'm going to do my best. The Bible says he was so large that when the knife went in, the fat closed around it, including the, the, the hilt and everything. Uh, the knife basically, uh, he plunged it in, and then he, he, it was just gone. It was sucked into the body. And the Bible is very polite. It says 
that then the dirt came out. The original word for dirt is parshade. It means, it means feces. I'm just going to tell you as it is, okay? And I don't say that to be gross. I don't say that, to, but, but I say that because God's going to use this in just a minute. It is amazing how God does his work. So we're, we're doing this for a reason. Now, Ehud locks the doors because, hey, when you assassinate a king, a leader like this, you're not just going to walk out and get away. But God has all this worked out. And so he locks the doors and he scoots out the back way and you say he'll be caught. No, no, no. God has, uh, the Bible tells us next what happens inside the summer home. The servants came to the doors. They found them locked. And here's where it's interesting. The Bible says, this is what they said. Notice the word surely. Surely he covereth his feet in his summer chamber. Now, when the Bible says that a person's covering his feet, it's talking about going to the bathroom. That's what happened with Saul when he went into the cave to cover his feet. And David came and stole a piece of garment from him, cut off a piece. Remember that story? Uh, yes, that's true. David cut off a piece of the garment off of Saul's robe when Saul was covering his feet. All right? So that's what the Bible's talking about. Well, they said, when they came to the door, they said, surely he's covering his feet. And why would they say surely? Basically saying, obviously, he's using the restroom is what they're saying. I'm sorry, I, I really apologize for this. This is not pleasant for me either, but do you remember what happened a moment ago when he stabbed Eglon? What came out? Let me just do it this way. Knock on the door. Surely he's going to the bathroom. That's what they basically said. Do we get the picture? May I move on now to the rest of my message? We, we got the picture. I'm simply saying that because, hey, this is awesome that when you do something for God, when you decide to do what God wants you to do, He'll take care of all those little details. We might say He'll never get away. Yeah, He got away. Why? Because for who knows how long, they're sitting outside. The Bible says until they were ashamed. They didn't, nobody wanted to go in there. Jabba the Hutt doing what they thought Jabba the Hutt was doing. I don't want to go in there. You go in there. No, you go in there. And finally when they did, after Ehud was long gone, here is, uh, the servants find him and he's dead. What a story, huh? Who's ready for lunch? <laughs> Here's some lessons we can take from this story. Uh, just three I want to give you today. Number one, there's a time to stand for what's right. I want you to see something interesting here in this passage. Look at verse number 18. <clears throat> when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king. Now, pay attention to what it says because there's some things that will help us understand the whole picture here. He shows up strapped with a knife, ready to take out King Eglon, and he sends everybody home, uh, sends everybody out so he can do it, and then what does he do? Well, it, this is what's interesting here, because uh, he, he goes there, he delivers the tribute, he sends the others away, the big moment is here, and then he leaves too. Now, did he chicken out? I don't know what the reasons were. Did he think it's impossible to do it? But the Bible says he only made it as far as Gilgal. Now, let me tell you about Gilgal. In Joshua chapter 4, they had just come back over the Jordan. Uh, the priests had stood with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the Jordan. The Jordan had spread its waters so that the children of Israel could walk across. And as long as those priests stood out there, the river did not come together. But when they left, then the rivers came back together. And after that happened, Joshua and they were rejoicing for what God did for them there. And Joshua said in Joshua 4.21, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Uh, then let your children know, saying, Israel came over to Jordan on dry land. 
And so Joshua and the Israelites built an altar there at Gilgal to announce this is what God did. But now, that's not the case. This time, when Ehud comes to Gilgal, he sees quarries. The word for quarries is pasil. It means idol, graven image. Now the altar of God has been replaced by false gods and false idols. He stops here. This is just how I kind of see it in my mind's eye. Some speculation here. He had been to see Eglon. He had been ready to take him out, evidently, because he had the knife. You don't wear a knife to visit a dignitary unless you're ready to use it. And so he'd been ready to take him out. For some reason, he left. But he only made it as far as Gilgal. And he saw the altars. And he saw the false gods. And in, in my mind, really, the only way I can interpret this is that he said, Ehud's thinking, now, I can't go on. I can't go back home. Hey, look, I, I'm not, I don't know if I can kill the king. I've got a bum right arm. I've only got a left arm. But friends, somebody's got to do something. We can't go on like this. God's, uh, this special place has had great spiritual significance and now there's false idols here. Somebody's got to do something. And bless God, if nobody else is going to step up, I'm going to do the best that I can. And he heads back to, the, to Eglon. He gets to Eglon and uh, he, he, what happens, we just talked about a few minutes ago. A person of conviction will stand for what's right. Kelsey Lee Reber said this, when we stand up for what we believe in, for what's right, there is always a chance that we risk the very things we fight for. Safety, freedom, our lives. However, if we stand down, the risk is definite. So if we fight for what's right, if we stand for our principles, there is a risk involved. But I tell you, friend, if we don't stand for them, the risk is absolutely definite. We will lose those things. We see that in uh, our nation. We see that in our Christian lives as well. God give us some men, some women that will stand. God give us men of integrity who will stand when others fail. God give us women who are faithful and true to, uh, to truth and justice. We desperately need people today who will stand for what's right. And Ehud said, hey, nobody else is doing anything about these idols. Nobody's doing anything about Eglon. I only have, I'm only half a man, but I'll do what I can. And that conviction sent him back to Eglon. Sometimes, friend, you got to stand for it, even if you're the only one. Secondly, I want you to notice here, God is not limited by your disability. Ehud was a Benjamite. Here's what's interesting. The name Benjamin, you know what it means? The son of my right hand. <laughs> and that's, that's who Ehud was. All through the Bible, the right hand is synonymous with power, with might, with authority and ability. In Exodus 15, 12, it was Moses' right hand that was stretched out over the Red Sea as it the uh, Red Sea came together and it killed all the Egyptians that were following them. In Psalm chapter 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saved His anointed with the saving strength of His right hand. When we are in trouble, Psalm 60, verse 5, the Bible tells us that thy beloved may be delivered, saved with His right hand. In Psalm 118.16, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. And what does it say? Uh, what about that wonderful promise in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will uphold you. Yea, I will help you with the right hand of my righteousness. Where is Jesus at today, friend? Luke chapter 22 verse 69. Hereafter shall the Son of God sit on the right hand of the power of God. God swears by His right hand. Isaiah chapter 62 verse 8. He has pleasures by His right hand. 
Psalm 16:11. His chosen one sits at his right hand. Psalm 110, verse 1. But wait a minute. Ehud didn't have a strong right. All he had was a left. He didn't, he, he didn't have the ability to do anything with his right hand. But I like Ehud. He did not sit around moaning and complaining about what he could not do. He focused on what he could do. And uh, the Bible says he made this dagger. He put it on his thigh underneath his clothing. They would see him not as a danger because of his useless arm. Even if they did check for a, a pat him down or check him, they probably wouldn't find that knife on his right leg. So this is what he did. Instead of complaining about what he could not do, he said, hey, how about I use my disability for my advantage? Now stay with me because this is good stuff right here. Because uh, beyond our weakness, we can do something great for God anyway. And here's the best part about it. God does not only use you despite your weakness, sometimes He uses you through your weakness. He uses that weakness as a very conduit of Him doing a great work through you. It's instructive, by the way, that God didn't heal Ehud. Did you notice that? God didn't say, hey, Ehud, zap! Now your arm's good, go do the work. No, He used him despite and through his disability. That's a wonderful thing. Matter of fact, uh, it's not in spite of, but through our weakness. Paul's, that's why he could say in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Stop thinking. Your limitations limit God. They don't. Because it's not your strength He depends on. It's His. I'm always captivated by people that have great hindrances in their life and still do great things. Maya Runman is one of these people. Runyon. Uh, she's a runner. She tried to qualify for the Olympic Games in 1996, but she came just a little short. She tried again in 2000, and this time she made it. She made the team for the Sydney Olympics. She, she uh, finished 8th place in the 1,500-meter dash, and that was the best finish ever for a United States woman to that point. The thing that made Runyon's accomplishment so remarkable is she was blind, is blind. She's the first legally blind athlete to qualify and compete in the Olympic Games. Runyon can only see shapes and blurs. She can't make out anything. She's almost completely blind. But here's what I found fascinating in this story. She says that her lack of vision is really an asset for her. This is what she says. I focus on the finish line in front of me instead of seeing what the other runners are doing. And here's the statement I love. It's so nice not having visual distraction. How about that? Looking beyond her disability, not letting that stop her from seeing and achieving her dreams. What a blessing. She determined not only to, to go beyond her disability, but to transform that limitation into an asset. All my life, I have grown up in the shadow of such a man. At the age of two years old, my dad contracted polio, leaving him crippled in his left leg. There is so much that he has never been able to do. I could outrun him when I was about four years old because he can't really run. He's never been able to raise his hands above his head. He's never done a push-up or really anything like that. He told me not long ago as he was being raised in the Amish, so the vehicles they drove were a horse and buggy. He told me uh, uh, not long ago that when he was a teenager, he spent hours and hours in the barn trying to learn how to harness a horse, which he eventually did learn. Uh, it's not easy to harness a horse when you can't reach up. 
But he learned and, and got beyond that because he was determined that he would not be helped. Growing up, I saw him fall many, many times. I saw his lack of ability to do simple chores. I saw the stares of other people that always undoubtedly hit us as they always accompanies any abnormality in the area. What I have not seen or heard and never did as a young person, not one time, is his complaining about his lot in life. He did not cry or moan about what he could not do. He simply did what he could. He took a stand for Christ when I was 10 years old, and most of you know the story, but he took a stand for Christ that cost him his family, his support system, and he still stood and follow the Lord Jesus Christ rather than a religion. As a young boy, his actions seared into my conscience the importance of standing for what's right. During the time that we were transitioning from a false religion, I learned some things about his weakened body. He, his leg is weak, but his backbone was made of steel. His stature is small, but he stands as a giant among men. My dad is one of my heroes, and I'll tell you why. There came a time in his life where he determined, hey, I am not going to let what I cannot do stop me from what I can do. I'm going to let God use my frail, disabled body to his glory. And let me tell you, that's like saying sick him to God. Because that's all he wants anyway. He just wants all of you. It doesn't need your abilities. He doesn't need your talents. He just wants you and all that you have to offer because of that, uh, countless people have come to Christ as a result of my dad's faithfulness in pastoring for so many years. He's impacted people all over this country. Let me tell you, friend, God is not after your capability. God is after your availability. And you just make yourself available to Him. Let Him use you. Hey, Ehud said, Lord, I don't have a strong right arm, but God, I got a left arm. Hey, you in the business of using left arms? Yes, He is, and He still is. He'll use your left arm. He'll use your weakness. He'll use your inability to do great things for Him if you'll just give it to Him. Just tell God, here I am in all my weakness. Use me. What a blessing. What a blessing. Don't let your disability keep you on the bench. Get in the game. American figure skater Scott Hamilton said the only disability in life is a bad attitude. I think that's about right. You get that right and God will use you despite what other weaknesses you might have. Why don't you... Every one of us in here today ought to determine to say simply today, Lord, here I am. Use me. Third thing, when you stand, you'll inspire others. Look at verse number 27. And when it came to pass, when he was come, he blew the trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountain. He bowed before them. And he said, follow after me. For the Lord hath delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. Here's a man. Ehud, that said, I don't care if no one else is going to do anything. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to let God use me to take out this wicked king. And when he did so, a whole nation got behind him. I tell you, nothing inspires confidence like, or in, in others like seeing the power of God on your life. Ehud teaches us much about how God saves his people. Uh, all through Judges, you see men who had these unexpected gifts on them, or they were really unexpected as far as the world is concerned. We even talked a couple weeks about, ago about how a woman led them, Deborah. Now again, 
you're not going to go through the whole thing again, but today that would be, okay, no big deal. But then that was a huge deal that a woman would lead them, and yet that's who God used. He often does the unexpected. This all points to the most unexpected and left-handed, you could say, person of all. When he came, the Bible says there was no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53, 2. He was despised and rejected of men. He achieved his victory, and he did it alone for his people. He was in no way helped by them, and he crushed his people's enemies through his own weakness, just like Ehud did. All the judges, really, from Ehud on, point us to Christ. Unlike them, Christ did not use deception like Ehud. He did not need assistance like Deborah and Barak. He did not display selfish ambition like Gideon. He did not, he was not rash like Jephthah. He had no sexual weakness like Samson. Uh, when he came, uh, he was in every way flawless like pictured in Othniel. Not that Othniel was, but nothing was listed. And yet, like Ehud, Jesus was an outsider. No one believed that he was God's chosen ruler or his rescuer. Jesus was an unlikely deliverer. Born in a barn, living a nomadic life, rejected of men. He delivered his people not through great triumph or with an army. He delivered his people through the crushing defeat of a cross that ended up not being a defeat for us spiritually. Amen. In these historical narratives, and one of the reasons I love them so much in Judges, God shows us how his salvation will come. And it doesn't come in a Hollywood way at all. It came from an outsider born in a manger. Through weakness, not what the world would call strength. Through defeat, not what the world would call victory. Through folly, not what the world would call wisdom. We're, we are, <coughs> excuse me, we're not to do what Eglon did when he looked at God's deliverer and despised him, so to say. He didn't threaten, he didn't, didn't see him at all as a threat. Uh, we are not to look at Christ in verse, uh, Isaiah 53, 3, and esteem him not. We're to realize uh, who he is. We're to see the power of God and the wisdom of God. First Corinthians one twenty four. Ehud points us to Jesus, the one who delivers us from the penalty of sin. He also delivers us from the power of sin. The flesh that, much like Jabba the Hutt there, uh, that sat there and, and took in all the, the fat of the land and, and uh, continually uh, fed himself until he became a grotesque image listed in the Bible as a very fat man. That's what your flesh does. Your flesh is never satisfied. You can never, ever, ever fill up your flesh. You can never give it enough. It will always want more and more. It is a glutton for sin. And the Bible says that Jesus gives us victory over that. Romans chapter 6. God uses a left-handed deliverer to save a left-handed people. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For you see your calling, brother. How not many wise men after the flesh? Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. God is a God of grace, not of works. He shows us so clearly all throughout the Bible, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no, nothing that, no amount of works that we can offer heaven to gain salvation for us. It is through His mercy and His grace that He saves us. And we see that all throughout the Word of God. He is a God of grace, not of works. That's why He takes people from the margins of society to show that salvation is of Him, not of their ability, of which they have none. 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, is the song we sing. Have you accepted Him today, friend? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you've realized the inadequacy of your own efforts? Have you ever realized that religion's not going to cut it, church membership's not going to cut it, baptism's not going to cut it, only a personal relationship with Lord Jesus Christ? Don't leave without making that decision. But Ehud also points to Christians, as ourselves as Christians. God wants to use you. You say, but preach, you don't understand. I don't have a strong right hand. I don't have abilities. I don't have talent. You got a left hand, just offer that to him. And you know I'm speaking figuratively. You got something, just offer what you have to God. You know God made you. My wife sang so beautifully a few minutes ago, I can't sing like that. I only sing in quartets, as you've noticed, because the other three guys, they cover me up. So I can't do a, a solo like that. God didn't give me that ability uh, that she can sing very well. So what do we do? We're all different. We all have different abilities. Just offer what you have for God. I mean, I offered my voice to God. He said, no thanks, I'll let you preach. You know, uh, But uh, I'm just kidding about that. We offer our, whatever we have to God and let Him... I don't have a right hand. I have a left hand, though. I love that about Ehud. The left-handed deliverer. He said, uh, he, he recognized he had a disability, but that didn't stop him. He said, oh, I'll just offer my left hand and do my best with that. Praise God for him. I hope you have the same uh, willingness today. Just be willing. With, uh, despite your disability, even through your disability, simply stand before God today and say, here I am, Lord. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. What a wonderful story, huh? Of God using somebody who's unlikely. If you're here today, friend, and you've, Maybe, maybe this message found you right where you needed it. You've got a left hand. You might not have a right hand, but you've got a left hand. You've got some things that you can offer God and you just haven't done it. Why don't you give that over to the Lord today? Why don't you just say, Lord, here I am. Use me in all my weakness and frailness. I'll give you what I have. Would you stand along with me and as she begins to play?